Good morning, I'm Pastor Jay, and it is a privilege to welcome you here this morning. Uh, Becky and I, when we got up this morning, very similar experience to each Lord's Day. When we get up, we love our church. We love coming together. There's nothing like gathering with large groups of people to sing and to fellowship and to gather around God's Word. I was talking to a pastor this last week in another state, had a great convo with him. We were talking about his church. He was asking me some questions, and then he said, how's your church going? And I said, we love it. I said, we're on our ninth year here, and I said, it still feels like our honeymoon. And I said, this is just a great flock. We love our leaders. We love our people. We love just being part of that flock. And it was a joy just to share that with him. So it is truly a privilege. We want you to know that, how much we love our church family. If you're visiting with us today, we are in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and I invite you to open to chapter 5. Ecclesiastes is a book about finding life's purpose. We've learned along the way that what makes Ecclesiastes a bit unusual in the Bible is that it's a journal, it's a diary, a diary of a madman in a sense, of a desperate man, a man who was on a quest. He was binging on pleasures and had been for a long time and only to realize that he was ending up in misery. And even good pleasures. In fact, almost all the pleasures mentioned in Ecclesiastes are good ones. This is not a book that is bashing pleasure. And we've said that. Solomon is not anti-pleasure. But it's pleasure in the right context. And so Solomon is learning, as we go through here, that when you're binging on pleasure, when you're pursuing pleasure for the sake of pleasure, it ends in misery. Even when you're binging on good pleasure. So this weekend we come to our section, which is chapter 5, verse 8 all the way to the end of chapter 6. It's an extended section that all is coherent. And it is giving us some pretty straightforward talk about the deceitfulness of wealth. This is painful stuff, but it's good stuff. It's good reminders to us. In these chapters, here's what Solomon's doing. I'll kind of give you a spoiler alert, then we'll dig into it. Here's where Solomon's going. He is exposing the folly and foolishness of seeking lasting satisfaction in money and possessions. Now, we all use money and we all have possessions. But Solomon's whole point is, if that is what you're looking to, if that is what you're grasping onto for meaning and for solidarity in life, something solid, you're going to be grievously disappointed. So it's an extremely practical section that applies, by the way, to rich and poor alike, to all income levels. Greed and the deceitfulness of wealth has nothing to do with income level. Nothing. It has everything to do with the condition of the heart. And so that's what we're going to talk about. So in this section, chapter eight, uh, 5, verse 8, through all the way through chapter 6, he's going to be showing us two things about wealth. Number one, Solomon's conclusions about wealth. He's going to give us at least six that he came to. And then secondly, his conclusions about contentment. His reminders about contentment. First of all, Solomon's conclusions about wealth. One of the great things of preaching just through the Bible is taking the text at its word. And this one, you'll see, just pretty much follows right along as he hammers away. So, so far in our study in this, if you've not been with us, we've learned that Solomon had an insatiable appetite for more. Just more. More of pretty much everything. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, I amassed silver and gold for myself. And I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. 
And there are those of us here today who could say the same thing. And this eventually, after he kind of crashed and burned, led Solomon to six conclusions about wealth. All I'm going to do is walk you through the inspired text. We do believe this was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to show you, right out of the text, his conclusions about wealth. Number one, wealth often breeds injustice. And we find this where? Well, you find this in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. Wealth often breeds injustice. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights do not uh, denied, don't be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over both of them are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. <laughs> we can all say, uh, yeah. So Solomon's first conclusion here, as you look at this, is that the lure of wealth breeds and tends to breed injustice. Unjust structures, unjust policies, unjust laws, and a culture. The reason goes back to Judeo-Christian worldview. You go, everything kind of goes back to Genesis. The reason goes back to an understanding that Genesis is literal space-time history. And the internal, intrinsic wickedness of the human heart. That the Imago Dei is in every human being. That we are created in the image of God. There's something beautiful and noble about every human being that separates humans from the animal kingdom. But there's also something deeply perverse and wicked in every human being. And that is called indwelling sin. And so both our theology and our experience around us in a fallen world leads us to expect corruption at every level of culture and government, and we certainly find that. And so wealth typically breeds injustice. Second conclusion, Sol uh, Solomon wants us to understand something that's very insidious about wealth, and it is this. Wealth pushes us towards increasing dissatisfaction. And it's always doing that. Wealth is always pushing every human being towards increasing dissatisfaction. Where do I see this? Verses 10 and 11. Couldn't say it a whole lot clearer. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never, never satisfied with their income. So if you are not satisfied with your income, you say, well, I don't make very much. That's not the point. If you're not satisfied with your income, this is meaningless. We'll get to that in a second. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. What benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? So why does wealth constantly push us to dissatisfaction, young and old alike? Young people, this is the same as true for you as everyone else. The reason wealth so easily pushes us to dissatisfaction is because of this. It is always tempting us lying to us and seducing us to put our trust in it. That's why. That's why. And according to verse 10, Solomon uses a word in verse 10 that he uses 38 times in this book. We've, you've been with us, you know the word. It's a Hebrew word, and it's the word hevel. We transliterate it in English, H-E-V or H-E-B. It's actually a soft bait, so it's usually pronounced hevel. And it's simply a Hebrew word that means... Uh, Empty, can mean empty. The NIV translates it meaningless. That's not a really good translation. Uh, you can translate it breath or temporary, momentary, vapor, smoke, mist. When you're grasping for it, when you're grasping, and that's his point. Wealth is hevel. It's, it's, it's not that it's not real. 
but it's not solid, it's not substantial. And so when we're grasping on it to hang on to it, it's going to disappear. Just like if you're grasping onto smoke, trying to hang in the air and grasp onto smoke or a cloud, it isn't going to work. And that's, that's his point here. Because wealth is heavy, grabbing onto it for satisfaction is an illusion. And it's duping many. And there are some here this morning. You are there right this minute. Wealth is heavy. And because of that, there's this constant push to trust it, and it's going to lead to increasing dissatisfaction. It's a cycle. Now, here's the problem, and this is a problem for all of us, myself included, all of us. Most of us are convinced, yea, deeply convinced, way down inside. I would bet that almost all of us hear this constantly in our own mind. Most of us are deeply convinced, deep down inside, of a formula that's a lie from the pit of hell. Here's the formula. It goes something like this. Okay, I understand what you're saying, and love of money is wrong and all that. Most of us can sit in Bible-teaching churches and still be convinced of this formula. More money and more possessions equals more happiness, more security, and more satisfaction in life. And the prosperity gospel has just fed that. Has just fed that over the last number of decades. The more money and more possessions equals more happiness, more security, and more satisfaction. It's not just secular, heathen, atheists, and all the others who believe that. Good God-fearing people sit in Bible-teaching churches and silently buy into that and hang on to it. And the evidence that what I'm saying is true is how quickly Bible-believing Christians will readjust and violate important priorities in their life as they pursue more. Priorities like violating the Sabbath, neglecting their Bibles, neglecting prayer, quit tithing, become infrequent church attenders. On and on the list goes. We set aside important, vital priorities, ignore them, violate them, because we become convinced that more money, more possessions equals more happiness, more security, and more satisfaction. And Solomon is telling us here, if we will listen, that this is deceptive and dangerous, and it's not a good road to walk. Because the money monster is never appeased. He's never satiated. You can never quench the money monster. As Jesus said so well, you cannot love God and money. Nobody would ever admit they love money, but there's lots of us around who do. That's why Jesus was so clear about it. And remember, he never put something else next to God like, quite like that in that statement. He didn't say you can't love God and bacon. He didn't say you can't love God and your family. He didn't say you can't love God and sports. He didn't say you can't love God and food. Now, all of those can become idols and replace him. But the one thing he identified that will vie for your worship more than anything else is money. And he knew that. He spoke more about money than he did heaven and hell. And he said, you can't love God and money. It won't work. You might think you can do it. You might think you can straddle the two. It won't work. You will hate the one. He went on to say, you'll hate one and love the other. It's impossible. I'll give you a true story about the money monster. 
Some of you know my dad recently went to heaven, and I shared this story around his death because it was so impactful to me. I've shared it. I'm going to share it here this morning because as I was working on this, it just, again, came to the surface as such a, an apt example of this, of this reminder here that wealth pushes us towards increasing dissatisfaction. When my dad got out of college and moved to Southern California, and that's where I grew up, he started a data reduction company with a group of guys. They're all electrical engineers. And the company went great. It went bonkers, in fact. They issued their IPO of stock, and everything went really well. One day, my dad's riding in the car, and they, you know, this is a group of guys, and one of them had to be named president, so they named this guy Art President. And so my dad's riding with Art, and Art is just dreaming about, my dad said he was just, in the car talking about, okay, then we're going to get this, and we're going to get that, and we're going to get this, and we're going to get that, and as a company, and do this, and do that. And my dad finally turned to him and said, Art, he said, when will enough be enough? And these are all guys like in their mid-30s, early 30s. And he said, Art turned to him and said, Jerry, I'm only worth $2 million. I want to be worth $10 million. Now, let me ask you, 32, 34, 36-year-old, Who's worth 10 million? You think that's going to be finally a place of contentment? And the answer is no. Why? Because wealth built in is this incessant push to trust it so that it will satisfy. And it's a lie from hell. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told one day a very wealthy young man, whom Jesus actually loved, it says, he looked at this guy and had affection for him, came to Jesus and asked him a really good question. He said, How can I inherit the kingdom of God? Basically, how can I make sure I'm right with God? And Make sure I spend eternity with him. Jesus looked at him and discerned what was going on and gave him a direct command. Now, this direct command, the church has always understood, is not a command to all Christians in all time. It's Jesus discerning what's going on in somebody's heart and nailing idolatry in this guy's life. And so it said Jesus looked at this guy and said, okay, here's what you got to do. You need to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Well, he knew why this wasn't going to work. And it said the man, there's a slang phrase used, an idiom that said his face fell, meaning he became very discouraged and he walked away. He walked away. It's interesting to do a study in the Gospels of people that walked away from Jesus or listened but then left. He left. He walked away. Why? Because Jesus nailed his idol. You want to know what your idol is? You know how to know how to figure out what your idol is? It's what you fear the most losing. That's your idol. And most idols are not bad things. A spouse, a child, your health, your money, your retirement portfolio, your business, your ministry. All of these things can be idols. And if that's the thing you fear the most losing... That's an idol. And Jesus nailed this guy. And it's a reminder that the root of all evil is not money. you got to have money. The root of all evil, Jesus was very clear, is the love of money. That's why he he talked about it so much. He knew what he could do to the human heart. The love of money, which is why God commands true born-again Christians to be generous. One of the only ways to break The bondage of money and wealth is to make sure, God says, that you at least are giving away 10% of your income. That's a Hebrew word that means tithe. It's not just a suggestion. It is a command because God knows 
that that is one of the things that helps break the idolatry of the human heart when it comes to money, is to make sure we are increasingly being sacrificial in our giving, and it starts with the tithe. Parents, you should be teaching your children about tithing. You want to pass on blessing to your kids, teach them how to tithe. Teach them how to take that money and present it to their church as an offering unto the Lord and watch what God will do with it. Something happens in our souls when we let go of money and increasingly become a sacrificial giver. The Bible teaches one of the best ways to undercut love for money and to invite blessing. That's the word Malachi uses, which is a broad category, is by being generous with our tithe and going above our tithe. What's sobering is the love of money is not just restricted, as we said, to secular people or to rich people. It's epidemic in the church, a love for money, and reclassifying what blessing means. Case in point, Becky and I were having dinner oh, a number of years ago in another state with a, by human standards, a very successful executive and his wife. It was a delightful evening. We're out in, the, you know, in their house, and they had all the accruements of, of the life of opulence. And it was an interesting evening, but at one point, he, the gentleman was describing his climb up the corporate ladder. And even the dining room table we were sitting at, I can't remember what country it came from, but wowza. That's a Hebrew word, wowza. I mean, it's mean like, wowza. And he was telling us all the countries they'd lived in and the exotic places they had visited on vacation and all the stuff they bought. And at one point, he, he used this word. He said, I'm, I just can't believe the way God has blessed us. And then he went on to share how he'd lost all his kids spiritually and the impact his lifestyle had on his health. And we walked away realizing the money monster had another victim. For him, blessing meant stuff, vacations, exotic locations to live, and really cool, wow, the dining room tables. But he missed that that had a price tag, and he was using the word blessing to cover up what it really was, greed and selfishness, and the damage it had done in his life. Too often, I speak, Christians speak, automatically in ways that assumes that possessions and money, especially as they increase, it's blessing from God. It can be, but it can also just be cover-up for greed, selfishness, and foolish pursuits. So, reminder number uh, one. Wealth often breeds injustice. Reminder number two, verses 10 and 11. Wealth pushes us, pushes us relentlessly to increasing dissatisfaction. Thirdly, verse 12. Wealth typically brings added stress in life. And I don't know of anybody that would really deny this, that the more you have and earn and buy and own, stress levels go up. Verse 12 says this well. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance prevent, permits them no sleep. In essence, employees sleep better than their bosses. <laughs> Basically what he's saying. Number four, wealth is quickly lost. Oh, don't we know this? 
verses 13 and 14. I have seen a grievous evil unto the sun, wealth hoarded or piled up to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune. The Bible speaks of wealth having wings, it just disappears. So that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. All of us, I would fair to say, have experienced times when we have lost suddenly without warning wealth. Could be a retirement account, it uh, could be a business, it could be uh, your savings account, it could be something was stolen from you, but wealth just has a way of suddenly disappearing. It's hevel. And if we're grabbing on to that for security, that's why it's so dissatisfying. That's why it's such an illusion. Number five, wealth will be left behind. Verses 15 to 17. He's just giving us conclusion after conclusion after conclusion. You might say this is kind of brutal. It is, but in a sense it's also liberating because it reminds us who's God and what's not. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they're going to depart. They will take nothing from their toil that, they're, that they can carry in their hands. This too is a, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Mark it well. You're going to leave your wealth behind. When I was in my teen years, my parents took us, that time we lived in Michigan, and they took us to Chicago here, and we went to the Field Museum because the treasures of King Tut were on display. I want to sing Steve Martin's song, King Tut, whenever I say King Tut. But I'll spare you that. The, display, the, the pleasures and the, the, the uh, treasures and all of King Tut were on display. 18-year-old king in Egypt who died... And wow, did he leave, if you've ever seen his treasures, either on display here or somewhere in the U.S. or where they are on permanent display in Cairo or on the Internet. And yet, how much did King Tut take with him into the next life? And the answer is absolutely zero. Zero. Can't. It is going to be left behind no matter what you pile up, no matter what I pile up, no matter how much I put into my business, my ministry, my 401ks, my savings accounts, how much land I acquire, buildings I acquire, all the stuff, it's all going to be left behind. All of it. And we would do well, I would do well to remember that. The last reminder, verse 18, and that is remember to find satisfaction in what you have. It is a battle, but it's a battle worth fighting. This is what I observe to be good, and it is appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. The antidote to dissatisfaction and greed is choosing to enjoy what God has given us, and we're going to go into that a little bit more in chapter 6, and fight the battle for contentment. That takes us now to Solomon's reminders about contentment. And there are two in chapter 6. The first is in verses 1 to 6. And it is this. Here's reminder number one about contentment. The ability to enjoy health and possessions is a gift from God. The ability to enjoy wealth and possessions is a gift from God. 
Chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, shows us that a person can have a very, quote, abundant life, blessed, whatever you want to show in there, lots of stuff, lots of things, lots of gifts, lots of pleasures, and still be miserable, not satisfied, and endlessly restless. Why? Because God, it says, is refusing to give them the gift and ability to enjoy their wealth and possessions. Verses 1 and 2. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. That's putting it mildly. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor. Now notice, who, gave these to the, who gives these gifts? God does. We've been saying all along, I'm going to keep saying until the series is done, Solomon is not anti-pleasure. Solomon is pro-pleasure. That's, the message of this book is not, go sit on a pole in the desert. That's not the message of this book. It's to understand God's gifts in the right context. I've seen another evil under the sun. It weighs heavily on mankind. God is the one giving people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. That's an incredibly generous verse. But, 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 God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. You say, that's perverse. (laughs) No, not perverse. God's the one who gave it. He is the one withholding the gift of enjoyment. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is hevel. This is smoke. This is mist. Why? Because God has blessed this person, given him lots, but then he holds back the gift. And this leads to what, now Solomon doesn't call it this. I'm calling it this. This leads to what I would call the God principle. And here it is very simply. Namely, the ability to enjoy whatever wealth you have and possessions you have, the ability to enjoy that only comes when we seek first the kingdom of God. If you don't hear anything else I say today, young people especially, hear this. The ability to enjoy whatever you have, whatever God will give you someday, the ability to enjoy that as God intended, will only be given to you by God if you seek first His kingdom. Jesus said the same thing in the Gospel of Matthew. I call that the God principle, just to remind us God first. Let me give you an example of one famous person in history who defiantly turned that upside down and paid the price, Sigmund Freud. The brilliant Austrian psychiatrist world famous. Nobody doubts his brilliance or his intelligence or his giftedness. Sigmund Freud did not believe in God. He was an atheist. And he announced what he called the pleasure principle. He actually called it that. He believed ultimate satisfaction in life, ultimate enjoyment in life, was not found in God. He didn't believe in God. It was found in immediate gratification of any and all pleasures, especially sexual ones. But financial ones, whatever, indulging that and seeking immediate gratification of our desires. That's Freud in a nutshell. Tragically, in later years, he suffered from severe depression because that trajectory takes us down that path. And he often ended up using and resorting to using cocaine for relief. In 1930, nine years before he died, he published a small book booklet called Civilization and Its Discontents. And he wrote this, quote, this is 
This is tragical. I mean, when you hear this. What good is a long life if it is difficult and barren of joys? And if it is so full of misery that we can only welcome death as a deliverer? Close quote. Kids, young people, that's where that leads. That's exactly where the pleasure principle will lead you if you ignore God. What good is a long life if it's difficult and barren of joys and if it is so full of misery that we can only welcome death as a deliverer? And if you know the rest of the story, Sigmund Freud asked his own physician to administer a lethal dose, a lethal dose of, uh, of morphine. In essence, he committed suicide because he was done. He was in so much physical pain from his mouth cancer and from his soul cancer, and he was done. Second reminder about contentment. Reminder number one, the ability to enjoy wealth and possessions is a gift from God given to those who seek first the kingdom of God. Solomon calls it fearing God. That's what wisdom literature, in fact, that's what the Bible calls it, fearing God. Solomon uses the phrase six times in his book. Second reminder is rich and poor alike battle discontentment. Again, it's not a rich, poor thing. It's not a socioeconomic thing. Every human being battles discontentment. Look at verses 7 to 9. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools, and what do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. <laughs> this too is hevel. There's his word again, chasing after the wind. It's an important reminder that greed lurks in the heart of rich and poor alike. So what's our summons this morning? This is a straightforward passage. I think we would all agree, yeah, this hurts a bit, but it's a, it, it's, this, these are important reminders. I mean, we need these reminders regularly. I do. So what's the summons? Summons is pretty straightforward. The only remedy for deceitfulness of wealth and being deceived by wealth, even if I sit in a Bible teaching church, people get deceived by wealth all the time. The only remedy is by remembering the God principle. Namely, that the ability to enjoy wealth and enjoy possessions only comes when we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In other words, as I've been phrasing it in other sermons, satisfaction and meaning in life will never occur under the sun until we have a restored relationship, a repaired relationship with the living God above the sun through His Son Jesus. You'll never find hope, sustainment, satisfaction, purpose under the sun until you come to know, but not just know, love and walk with the God above the sun, which means the book of Ecclesiastes points right to Jesus, and it points to his gospel. Jesus is the one who said, John's gospel, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And the Bible says the life surrendered to Jesus is not only the only way to escape judgment in hell, it's also the only way to find the path to lasting satisfaction and joy in this life. Don't believe me? Ask Solomon. That's why his journal is gold, and it's so valuable. So many people read it and think it's so dark and so negative. It is in spots, but it also shines forth with these powerful reminders about 
orient yourself early in life to these priorities and you will find the joy and purpose you long for.